Good morning, Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And yes, um, today I was like, am I in Charleston, South Carolina, at my uncle church in the country? Because um, it's kind of hot in here. I'm sorry if y'all didn't get that. I went to church and didn't have AC in the building, all right? Um, I pastored a church before being here, but they didn't have air conditioning in the building. But we were all right. We made it. Nobody died. Some people got mad because they got their hair done the day before and they got all frizzy. But, um, but God is good to us. Uh, we are going to continue on this study of Joseph. And I will tell you, I'm taking this in little baby steps. And so we're going to look at different caveats of this story the last couple of weeks um, that we are going to be looking at it. And so I'm going to take it as slowly as possible so that you're able to see some of what God is doing here, some of what you need to hear for your life. We continue, as I said, in this study on the life of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers at 17 years old for having a prophetic dream that they would all bow to him one day. Well, it's about 20 years later, and Joseph has been living in Egypt all that time, going from being a top house servant to prison to then by God's hand becoming second in command only to the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. There is famine in the land as dream predicted by Pharaoh and interpreted by Joseph. And because Joseph got God's prediction on it, Egypt under Joseph's direction saves up for the coming famine. Egypt becomes a place that the whole region and all of its people have to come and buy grain. It is a purchasing or trading system that Joseph is, is personally in charge of in its distribution and exchange. This was a setup for dramatic remeeting and renewal of Joseph and his brothers who have come to Egypt for some grain for their families. But this was also a setup for dramatic confrontation with his brothers and their God, for their sins and God's undeniable glory. We see from last week's scripture reading that's not in your bulletin that Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh, which means this. God has made me forget all my hardship in all of my father's house. So it's pretty clear here that Joseph is, is all too glad to have moved beyond the pain and injustice of these relationships in his family, and he thanks God for it. It is conceivable then that when Joseph sees his brothers again, he is not happy. In fact, as we read, the Bible says that Joseph speaks roughly with them. His anger, his stand against them and what they did came out through his voice and his actions. But before we make this about the big payback for Joseph, Joseph to get some get back on his brothers, we must let the words of his brothers in verse 28 focus this thing for us. When they realize they are in trouble with Joseph, possibly accused of stealing, whom, whom they don't recognize Joseph as their long-lost brother, abused brother, in verse 28 at the end of that verse, it says this, what is this that God has done to us? 
They realized that based on what they had done to Joseph, that that they were living life and stand face to face with an angry, not Egyptian Joseph, but an angry God. Looking deeper into their dilemma and veiled reunion with their angry brother, brother, what does it mean? Borrowing um, some phraseology from the famous sermon preached by 18th century Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, what does it mean to not only be in the hands of an angry God, but in the heart of an angry God? We see from this passage that it means first that God will not let your sin get away with you. And secondly, that God will not let you get away from him. God will not let your sin get away with you and will not let you get away from him. Going back to how Joseph declares in naming his firstborn son with a name that meant God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It was definitely a blessing from God that Joseph was able, right, to to not have to live under a remembrance that would condemn and jam and paralyze him. But here is what we need to recognize. Though Joseph was healthily enabled by God to move on, Sin itself in the life of his brothers would not and did not let them move on. It was clear that sin was having its way with them. The fact that Joseph had forgotten was not good news for the sins of his brothers because it meant from their standpoint that they were still guilty that they had to live in guilt until that sin was dealt with and brought forward before God and confessed and unveiled and forgiven. It's interesting that in verse 9, Joseph actually accuses his brothers of being spies, right? Of, Of having some hidden agenda or secret, thus justifying his roughness. But it is ironically true because they are hiding and holding on to a deep, dark sin secret that they have been unable to repent of and rid themselves of for almost 20 years. This whole theme carries on as we see, it's seen in how Joseph putting their money back in their sacks makes them out to be, right? On the way back home, they think they're just carrying grain that they have properly paid for. But by putting the money they thought they paid out in their sacks, they are now guilty of carrying a fugitive load, if you will. And it looks like they either stole the grain and did not truly pay for it, or that they took the money, get this, to enslave Simeon, who has been left behind as an insurance they would return his promise. So the money back in their bag says, you know what? You keep Simeon. The money in their bag says, you know what? We did a little trickeration. When, When you gave us the grain, somehow we had an inside trading thing going on, and we got our money back. These brothers were carrying a load. They were weighted down, not by what was in their backpacks. That just pointed to and represent the real fugitive traveler that they were carrying around on their backs for 20 years. 
They were guilt-laden by an undealt with, unjust, and unjust, and walking through life with their sin. It is clear that these brothers are, are dealing not with a forgotten sin, but a fugitive sin, which means it's a sin that is under the skin, right? That's not in the light. And when I say not in the light and hidden, I am not saying that they are not aware of it, but that it is not in a place to be properly dealt with. Their sin against their brother has become a known but hidden and fugitive enemy. It could not and has not been brought to a place to be dealt justice by God. For over 20 years, 20 years, y'all, Joseph's brothers have not, hel- have, ha- have not held on to this lie, but actually had this lie holding on to their lives, right? Running wild in and wreaking havoc on their lives. And as long as their sin was undealt with by God, given to God, this fugitive sin was also the sin holding them captive. And we can see it. We can see how this thing has held them captive for 20 years just by how they act and see things and even treat each other. Look at verse 18 with me. So they've been in prison. They've been put in prison custody for three days. And it says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, which they weren't at this point because of that sin, let one of your brothers... Remain confined where you are in custody and, and, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will, not, will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, right, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and and we did not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And then later, look at what happens in verse 26. Then they look... Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this their hearts, what? Failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And then look what happens when they tell their father about what what happened while they're in Egypt and about the money. They even, just so you know, lie a bit in their story, I guess to ease the anger and pain of their father. They tell him not that Joseph said they would die, but that as verse 34 says, that they would not be able to trade in the land. But going on, look at how this dilemma plays out in verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. Right? If in one of those sons, sorry, was Hanak, the guy, our organist. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Hanak was Reuben's firstborn son. I saw your name. I'm like, where'd you get this name? 
Okay, anyway, he says, kill Hanak and my other son if they do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said to him, my son shall not go down with you. Would you send your son down with somebody who's so willing to kill his sons? No, you wouldn't, right? For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow. Y'all, this a mess, ain't it? There is this whole family narrative built on and built around the deception and abuse and hatred and selling of Joseph. At every turn, it goes back to this guilty, distrust, blaming, controlling, right? Even bloody and burdensome kind of living and responding to things. They see everything, everything through the lens or better yet, through the bars, right? Behind the walls of their undealt with, uh, not in the open, an unconfessed sin narrative, and it mentally, emotionally, and spiritually confines and dysfunctionalizes them and their families. They are jammed up and held up by this 20-year-old sin. Like we saw in Paul's sermon a couple weeks ago, the second oldest brother, Judah, has even moved out of town because of the guilt and strain in the family and on him personally. Even Daddy Jacob, as we read, is holding his youngest son, Benjamin, in some kind of weird, overprotective way as a substitute for losing Joseph. Not a man has 12 sons. And he says, y'all going to take Benjamin. And if he gets lost, what does he say? I'll have no one. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. We right here. But if y'all think he goes back to his improper, weird relationship, he had Leah, the first wife was ugly. He didn't want her. He got Rachel later, who he really liked, and he only had two children, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. So he only considered somehow in his twisted thinking and love that Benjamin and Joseph were the, his real sons. Daddy can't even be free. I mean, he hates his other sons even worse now because the sin has him in the dark and it keeps him hostage to fear of losing his other son in his own overcompensating sin. The man says, if I lose my other son, I just as well go to hell. That's what he's basically saying. I mean, why could they... Not just have good sense, right? Why could they, like some of us would, you know, the, the, you know, the money thing, it was just a mistake. And we'll go back to that harsh speaking guy and we'll say, hey, look, somebody messed up. You know, the, the cashier gave me too much change. I gave them a 20. They gave me a 50 back. It was just a mistake, sir. Or maybe they should just interpret, you know. Hebrew, Egyptians thought it was real, thought it was wrong to eat with Hebrews. And maybe they thought, hey, look, we just hate you Hebrews, you know. And that's why he spoke roughly to us. Why couldn't it be reasonable? Why did it go to blaming by Reuben? Like he's trying to free and separate himself from the guilt and go off self-righteous, turning against and towards his brothers. 
they're like, hey, look, the reason this is happening is because we did that bad thing to our brother. We threw him in a pit. We tried to kill him. Then we realized that was kind of bad. So we just threw him in a pit, left him there. Maybe he'll die of starvation or hunger or, or thirst. Oh, that's not good. So let's just sell him off and, and lie to dad that he was killed by a wild animal, right? And Reuben comes and says, I told y'all not to do that. Why? Because the fugitive sin has them held captive in a deadly and condemning and controlling and terrible chokehold, and it has gotten into everything. Their work, their family, their money, their children, into the next generation even. Reuben offers, again, to kill his own sons if he doesn't return to Jacob with his son. clear. These brothers are not free to be what God had called them to be as his chosen people as long as this sin was in control of their narrative and of their stories, of their life before God and with each other and their world. What happens in the hands of an angry God? He does not let your sin, your fugitive held on sin, go unfelt, unknown, or keep running rampant or deadly dormant like he does through Joseph. He sees it and he remembers it and he sees its effects on you and will cause through circumstances for it to be too much, right? To make it break you and break through into the light to be caught and revealed, to come to the forefront of your thoughts, to eventually let it have to face him and be dealt with. This is true for each one of us in here, right? We all have something we're carrying. Even if we didn't do it, and it's been done to us, somebody put a heavy load of sin in our life back sack, and we have to carry it. We all have something there, right? That something, some story, some kept from God behavior, something we may know is wrong and have tried to hide and live with. Some of us, have, have, in trying to deal with our guilt or, or ignorance of why we felt bad about something, we've just justified it as okay and made being captive to our sins okay. Some of us didn't even know that we were doing or what was being done to us was wrong. But do you understand that it is not that God will not let you and me get away with it? That's not the issue. He sees it. You're not getting away with it. What is God concerned about? Like a good father, he is seeking to reveal it, not to make you suffer, not for you to be embarrassed and hurt, but to free you and me from the suffering in unjust way. Sin and Satan is keeping you captive in the guilt and terrorism of our undealt with sin. God 
in remembering. And I'm going to say being angry and rough with our sin through confrontation to letting it make you miserable and sad and empty and afraid, the good kind of afraid and unhappy. Just some of us, you know, it's good. We've just got plain tired and beat down and run down at the end of ourselves and things just not working out and happening right. That is God's grace for you and me. You can't, you know, God's going to make you run till you can't run anymore. It is good news that God will not let us and will not himself look past and forget it. It is good that God will let you crash into a metaphorical wall in your lives to be caught up and turned up in some way where your mistakes and mistakings and others evil towards you can be dealt with. Because of some of that stuff, some of you are regulated to be what Joseph accuses his brothers of being, right? Spies. Spies of God's goodness. Because of some mess in your life, you know how you're living? You're living like alien to God's goodness. You're just kind of on the outside looking in, Spying in on what it must be like to be forgiven and righteous and set free. I urge you, don't just open your backpacks like Joseph's brothers, but open the diary of your hearts and minds and even that history that's so fearful or even that closet that's been closed for so long. What is in there that you are carrying and carrying on in is a fugitive sin and the goodness and righteousness of God will come in and take care of it and bring you back to God's love and plan for your life. But get this. Not only will God let your sin, not let your sin get away with you, he will not let you get away from him. Look with me at verse 6. And Joseph, after they come in and they bow down. I got a fake handkerchief this morning, y'all. It don't hold up. It's just, it looked good, though. It's green. That's green. And Joseph recognizes brothers. Wait, no, I went too far. I didn't go far enough. Eight looks like six when you get this old. Okay. <laughs> now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. This whole thing is about what? The dream. The vision that turns out to be about God saving his people through Joseph, right? This is about God's plan. And what we see through Joseph as he remembers the dream, his brothers does not know or recognize him, but he recognizes that his brothers are in a position to fulfill the plan of God for their lives and the family. 
famine has driven them there, right? To this place to be in his plan for their good and God's glory. God took 20 years, two prison terms, a Jew becoming an Egyptian aristocrat, and a cross-national famine to bring them back to his plan to save them. What happens in the hands and hearts of an angry God? He uses his hands, driven by a heart, right, to be good to his people, and he will move earth and sky and nations and their leaders to bring you back to him, back to his way and back to his will. And as we've seen, success and failure and dysfunctional family and our sin will not stop him. As a matter of fact, with roughness and divine severity, like Joseph spoke to his brothers, God speaks to our lives and the world and its forces roughly with divine force, if you will, to force situations to craft and curve and straighten his plan for your life. And here is his plan that you can be pleasing and lovely and right with God to enjoy him and each other forever. This whole thing, right? The world that Joseph brothers went through was not about having to live with and face the rough voice and hands of some sort of angry and mean God as the end of their lives just as a means to no longer live apart from him. He is mean, right, against the jam up between you and him and us and each other because he doesn't want stuff that would separate us to be there anymore. Everything, though rough and harsh circumstantially, circumstantially people, that happens to them with Joseph, was about making them come back to him and bring their broken lives where it can be fixed. Look at the emotions. I'm really moved by these emotions Joseph has here and he has later, we'll see in next sermons. But look at verse 18 through 24. So he speaks roughly to them. And then it says this. After Reuben goes on and says, you know what? We should have listened. We shouldn't have done wrong. Verse 23, they talk about, you know, they talk about, look what we did against our brother. Then verse 23, it says, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So they have this guy interpreting, right? And they thought Joseph didn't understand Hebrew, but he did. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Tears. I thought he spoke roughly with them. I thought he was mean. I thought he was angry, right? But the Bible says he wept. These tears come because of one of two reasons we can surmise, right? That he remembers and feels and is personally acquainted with the hurt caused to him by his brother's sins against him. And then secondly, because he hates feeling that alienation between them, right? That they don't really know and see and are reconciled with him and each other. I've shared this with some of you before from this pulpit. 
but it's the best story I can think about. But my dad was born out of wedlock, and he never met his biological father that he lived in the same city with. My dad knew him, didn't want to meet him, but his father, he would see him in the street, and his dad wouldn't even recognize him. And his father had more children later. My biological granddad, I never met him either. Pictures up, but I never met him. And my dad actually taught his half-brothers and sisters as their band teacher, and they did not know they were his brothers and sisters, but he knew. And as he expressed to me, there was this pain and desire together because of sin and hope, right? Pain because of all that went into alienating him from the family. He told me he would sit out on the street in the dark and look in and see the family eating, right? He could look into the lit window and dream that he was in there with them. But he couldn't go in. But a desire at the same time to be reconciled with them and make things right, which eventually he did. Hear this. God was mean through Joseph, rough through Joseph, and Joseph's brothers even felt it and called out, why has God done this to us? Why? Because God hated and feels the hurt of things not being right between you and him. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Why is God rough and angry and mean, not to you, but for you? Because he hates and hurts, not frustrated and lost in these emotions, but purely and divinely so. God hurts and hates and is moved personally by what separates you from him, from you being freely and without guilt and sin, his and for him. And according to his plan, that he would be your God and you would be his loved people. It puts a whole new spin on that old basic gospel song, right? God's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother and sister, the whole world in his hands. When you are his people, captive and holding on to sin and sin holding on to you or circumstances have you separated from God, it doesn't matter. Hear me now. It doesn't matter how long or how deep things have cut or gone, God's hands and heart will with roughness and meanness and righteous anger make you, me, and our world break to bring you back to him. And this means he will draw and maybe drawing some of you in here through and out of what may feel like mean and rough circumstance because he wants to alleviate not only your pain and suffering, get this, but to satisfy his own divine desire to have sinners like you and me be his people, to know his love, to be gifted with a relationship with him. In and by the hands and hearts of an angry God is this relentless pursuit, emotionally driven divine love that God wants to be with you. He doesn't want any sin separating you from him. 
going back to what Joseph thought in naming his son, that God has made him to forget the hardship of his brothers and his father's house. But we see that God made Joseph to remember his suffering. But with that, to use him to bear and take on the anger and separation and made him to feel the grief of what God must have felt to have people live in sin and fear and guilt in the sheer pain of being alienated from him. God made Joseph, hear this, who didn't deserve to feel and know that pain, but for the sake of bringing his sinful, lying, deceptive brothers and fathers back, made him to personally remember and be acquainted with their guilt and their fugitive and imprisoning sin. That's why Joseph was angry and sad at the same time. I want you to know what we see on the cross, on what Jesus did for us on the cross. By the hands and hearts of an angry God, Jesus bore, right? He took on the divine desire of God to free you from your sin and to yield justice to our sin, to in his body know and express the pain and sorrow of God for our sin. So much so that the book of Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrow, of Joseph-like tears, but just for the whole world, that he was acquainted with grief and that our sin was on him and that by the anger taking out on him, for us, God's divine desire to have us was made possible. It is safe to say that God was angry and wept with divine emotion in the crucifixion of his son Jesus for you and me. He let Jesus be crushed and condemned in his angry hands and heart for our sins so that we will not be taken away from him by our sin and get away from him because of all that would separate us from him. Our lives if we are saved by Jesus, are in the best place possible. In the hands and heart of an angry God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness.